The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On a cold Saturday afternoon in November 2003, a young girl named Samantha woke up very excited about the fun that had been planned for that day. She was turning five years old, and her grandmother had been busy planning a very special birthday party for her. The whole family was in attendance, everyone that is, except for one person, Samantha's Aunt Angie. A day that had started out with so much joy would soon become a day forever associated with the disappearance and death of Angie. Not only was Aunt Angie not coming to the party that day, she would never be seen by her family again. Join me now as we take a look into the suspicious disappearance of Angie Arnell, the husband who fled with a very dark secret, and the Missouri reporter who helped track him down. Marianne vividly remembers getting her home all decorated. Samantha anxiously waited to open her gifts because there was one very important person who hadn't arrived yet. It was her Aunt Angie. When minutes turned into hours and Angie still hadn't shown up, Marianne grew worrisome. She remembers calling several times to her daughter's home with no answer. She then started feeling an underlying fear as she kept looking out the window, waiting and hoping Angie would suddenly arrive. After several hours had passed, Marianne decided to call Angie's home one more time, but this time she would leave a message. So it was about five o'clock and I called and I said, Angie, if you don't call me tonight, I'm going to be on your doorstep early in the morning. And... Two hours later, I saw her car pull up in the driveway, but November 1st, it's pretty dark out at that time, but I could see her dog in the car. So I opened the front door and Mike was standing there and he stepped in and I said, well, it's about time. What happened to you guys? Where's Angie? He came in and he sat down in the rocking chair and he said, well, she's gone now. And I said, well, what do you mean she's gone? He said, well, I don't know. I think she may have ran away with another man. And I said, what? Who? And he said, well, I don't know who. And I said, well, what would make you say such a thing? And he said, well, I came home from work uh, about a week ago and she was gone. So I just assumed she must have ran away with another man. I said, well, what did she take? She didn't take any clothes? No. He said, well... He took one thing. He said, you know that big collage that was up on the wall? And then she had made a, a poster-sized collage, and it was behind glass, and it was hanging on the wall. He said, she took that. I said, 
why in the world would she take that big cumbersome thing and not take her dogs or not take her money? What is going on here? He said, well, I don't know, but she took that, I guess, because it's gone, and she left. And so I said, well, did you file a missing persons report? And he said, no, she's not missing. She ran away, but not a man. So he kept getting up and going out. He said to check on the dogs, and I suspect maybe he was smoking, going out, but he kept coming back in and in and back out, and and he was very very nervous, very nervous. But when he said she's gone now, I knew something real bad had happened. I just knew. So he left, and my son said, "Mom, I thought he was going to shoot us all." The way he was acting, something's really wrong. Angie's not right, and I felt really threatened by him. The next morning, Marianne drove an hour to Morgan County. She explained to the sheriff that her daughter had gone missing, but for some reason, her husband suspected she had fled with another man. At that point, she said they discouraged her from moving forward with the report. They suggested she give it some more time, and they were convinced that Angie had indeed likely just run off, but eventually would show up. Mary Ann insisted this was something she needed to do, and after filing the report, she began to fall apart. I felt frantic, real bad, badly frantic, and desperate. I, I was scared, and I, it just hit me. I didn't even know how to deal with this thing. I couldn't get anything done, and I instantly started losing weight. I instantly had a rash covering my body. I don't know. I just went into some some weird illness. I found myself two days later laying on the kitchen floor crying, begging my stepson and my father to help bring Angie to me. Every day, Marianne would call the police to see if they had heard anything or had any leads on her daughter's whereabouts, and every day, they told her nothing. It didn't take Marianne too long before she began to feel intimidated by the sheriff's department. She got the impression they considered her a nuisance, with all her calls pestering them for information. Marianne firmly believed that from day one of reporting her daughter missing, Angie had been dismissed by local law enforcement, partially due to Mike's version of where Angie went, but also because of the community they lived in. Angie and her husband, Mike, had been living in a trailer located in the remote area of Ivy Bend, Missouri. Ivy Bend is a small community near the Lake of the Ozarks, a heavily wooded area known for its seasonal hunting and fishing. Like other small communities, the Bend has pockets of poverty and unfortunately has dealt with its fair share of crime. Its locality has made it an ideal hiding spot for fugitives and criminals, with the nearest police department being 30 minutes away. Marianne grew increasingly anxious and fearful over her daughter's disappearance and decided to drive out to the trailer and take a look around for herself. My husband and I went to Ivy Bend to see our son-in-law. I was trying to feign my affection for him because I needed to keep him in my pocket and I needed to see about anything I could find out from him. But I told my husband, 
Now Mike has bought another truck, and when we get there, you have to show great interest in that truck, make him put the hood up. You know, you really are interested in, and like that truck, because I'm going in the house to see what I can find of Angie's. So when I went in the house, the first thing I saw, that wall where that collage was hanging had been replaced, and there was a big sheet of drywall just screwed in. It was just white. It wasn't painted, and then the floor coming off of the bottom of that, it had been replaced too, like an elbow. That whole section had been replaced. I think that's important because that's where the collage was. And I feel he was telling me something without knowing he was telling me when he offered that that was missing. Mary Ann didn't believe that her daughter had run off with another man, as Mike had insisted. As much as she wanted to believe it, that would mean she was still alive. But deep down, she suspected Mike had something to do with her disappearance. Just as Mary Ann was growing more and more suspicious of her son-in-law, a postcard arrived in her mailbox, signed Angie. The postmark showed it had been mailed from Harrison, Arkansas. It appeared to be Angie's writing, although somewhat strained, and it stated, Dear Mom, Gary and I are on our way to visit his family in Texas. We'll write when we are settled. Love, Angie. For a brief moment, a sense of relief flooded over Marianne, and she rushed the postcard over to the sheriff's department. They communicated to her that their suspicions had been correct and decided to close the case. But as Marianne returned back home and started thinking about the card and the way it had been written, something just didn't sit right with her. After going over the card for several days in her mind, she decided to drive back to the sheriff's department and ask them to reopen the case. Went back in and I said, you need to reopen the case because I don't believe she wrote this. Once again, I had to fight with them, but they opened the case. Again, I am not anti-police. I very much respect police. I have a very good rapport with uh, the Missouri State Highway Patrol and many police agencies, but the detective at this agency was really, really inept, but I never got hardly any sort of investigation. Two years later, Marianne decided to reach out to a local news reporter to see if she could generate some movement and interest back into her daughter's investigation. At the same time, she also decided to pay for a billboard, offering a $5,000 reward for any information about her daughter's disappearance. She hoped that the combination of the billboard and news article might unearth some new leads. Little did Marianne realize that the reporter she had contacted was about to do a lot more. My name is Ravey Edwards, and at the time that I met Marianne Chapman, I was a reporter at the Jefferson City News Tribune. I received an email from Marianne Chapman, and she wrote to me about her daughter, Angie, and gave me brief details that her daughter had been missing since October of 2003, and that there had never been any type of news articles or anything written about Angie, and she was curious if I would meet with her and go over her case and if I would be interested in writing a story. So I contacted her back and went to meet with her a few days later. 
and she had a rather large dining room table just covered in essentially her own investigation that she had done just shy of two years. So I spent a great deal of time with her that afternoon and early evening. From the minute I sat down at her table and started listening to her talk about her daughter, it was very evident to me that she had a close relationship with her. And the fact that her daughter, she hadn't heard from her in nearly two years, was indicative to me that something foul had happened to Angie. I had an immediate sense that her husband had something to do with it. After meeting with Marianne, Reve decided to do what any thorough reporter would do, and she got in touch with the detective who had been assigned to Angie's case. After speaking with the detective, Reve found herself feeling both disturbed and shocked by the reaction she received. The officer detective that I spoke with who was assigned to that case felt it was ridiculous that I was even going to write a story. He referred to it as a, quote, non-story. He told me that there was no story there, that her husband had never been a suspect, and that I was ridiculous to think so, and they were still investigating it. He wouldn't talk a lot about what he had investigated, what his leads or theories were. He, he just was very tight-lipped, which also led me to believe there was more to it. Unsatisfied by the response from Morgan County law enforcement, Reve set out on a mission to track down Angie's husband, Mike Yarnell. She wanted to be able to look him in the eye and ask him point blank what he'd done with Angie. So I set out on a mission to figure out how to find him, and I quickly learned that he worked at a nursing home and was able to get on his work schedule. And so I planned a Saturday evening that I knew he would be clocking in for work sometime around 6 p.m. And I sat in the parking lot and waited until he arrived. And I knew what he looked like because Marianne had provided me photos of him. So when he got there and got out of a small vehicle, I chased him down and asked him if he would talk to me about his missing wife, and he agreed to do so. We talked about Angie somewhat extensively. He was very dark about it. He didn't open up. And he kind of gave off what I would call a guilty vibe, like he would not make eye contact with me. His answers were short. I don't believe he was telling me the truth. One of the questions I asked him was, how would he define his marriage to Angie? And he said, well, it was good. Everything was okay. And then he had a long pause. And then he said, well, she was cheating on me. So I asked him, how could everything be okay and your marriage be good if your wife was cheating on you? And he would not look at me. He just kind of shrugged his shoulders. I asked him, tell me what kind of person Angie was. He told me she was a good person, but sometimes she was a smart ass. Those were his words. I asked him if, if Angie had ever indicated that she was going to leave him, and his, his answer was simply no. I asked if he knew if Angie had ever hang, hung around with a man named Gary, and he said no, but he thought maybe that was her boyfriend. And the reason I asked about Gary specifically was because the postcard that Marianne had received a week after Angie went missing, allegedly from Angie, stated that she was going to Texas to be with Gary. So I wanted to know if Mike had any idea who Gary was, and he didn't, but he suspected that that was her boyfriend. I asked if they had ever fought or had any major arguments. He just kind of shook his head, yeah. And then I said, did you kill your wife? 
and he said, no. In June of 2005, Reve's write-up on Angie made it to the front page of the Jefferson City News Tribune. It wasn't long after that when Marianne received a call from a fairly large syndicated television show from New York City called The Montel Williams Show. They'd heard about Marianne's missing daughter and wanted to fly her out to be a guest on their show. It was the first time that Angie's disappearance had received national attention. While Marianne hoped all the media exposure would help bring her answers, Revae hoped that Mike Yarnell would hear about it and was trying to coordinate with a local radio station to mention the Montel Williams show. When they gave an air date, I believe it was in September of 05, I contacted the radio station in the community that Mike lived and asked him to run something on his program that Friday morning that this local girl that had been missing for nearly two years was going to be featured on the Montel Williams show that afternoon at 4 o'clock. And he did that. In fact, he read my story that I wrote about that. Not long after Angie was mentioned on the local radio channel and the Montel Williams show, had it been reported to Marianne that Mike had also gone missing. Mike Yarnell disappeared too, and I was told he left with his clothes tumbling in the dryer. He took a van of a neighbor's and he disappeared. No one had a clue where he'd gone, and Marianne began to feel her only chance of finding out where her missing daughter was had completely vanished with Mike's disappearance. As months passed by, Revae started becoming more and more invested into Angie's story, and a friendship between her and Marianne began to develop. Revae felt horrible about everything that Marianne was going through, and decided she wanted to do whatever she could do to help. As Revae went through all the details surrounding Angie's disappearance, the postcard Marianne had received a week after Angie went missing became of interest to her. Marianne had indicated to both the detective and Revae she didn't believe the handwriting was Angie's and had asked for the stamp to be tested for DNA. Months went by and every time Marianne inquired about the stamp, she was told it still hadn't been processed. Finally, Revae decided to do some investigative work on her own. That postcard just kept coming back in my mind, like, this is not Angie's writing. I know she didn't write this compared to other things that we knew she did write. So through a contact that Marianne had established with Todd Matthews, we were able to hook up with a lady named Peggy, Peggy Walla out of Texas. And Peggy is a forensic document analyst, essentially a handwriting expert. And so we initially sent her Angie's postcard, and this is now, we're talking around October 2007. She did an analysis based on that postcard and writings that we knew were Angie's. And she came back immediately with a report that no, Angie did not write that postcard. Revae brought the results to the prosecuting attorney in Morgan County and managed to get a copy of the written statement by Mike at the time Marianne had reported Angie missing. Snapped a picture of that statement with my phone and emailed it directly to the analyst in Texas. And within just a few days, she came back with a fairly lengthy profile on him and 100% guaranteed that he wrote that postcard based on handwriting and that he did it to be deceiving. But at this point, we still had no idea where Mike was. Mike had finally officially become a person of interest in the disappearance of his wife's case 
But despite this new evidence, Mike was nowhere to be found to do anything about it. Reve continued doing her own investigating and even reached out to Mike's family members, none of which claimed to know where he was. In the spring of 2008, Reve heard that Mike's father had passed away and was convinced that if Mike was still alive, he would surface again to attend his father's funeral. Reve had basically become a private investigator, and nothing was going to stop her from finding Mike and getting answers for Marianne. I thought, well, if he's going to come back at any point, it's going to be for this funeral. Who doesn't go to their dad's funeral, right? So I sat outside that funeral home, which really wasn't too far from where I was living at the time, and waited and waited and waited, thinking maybe he would at least sneak back in to say his goodbyes or something. And he didn't. And I attended the funeral thinking he would show up. He didn't. After Mike didn't turn up to his own father's funeral, Marianne and Reve started thinking about other ways to draw Mike out. So the fact that he at that point had been gone nearly three years, we knew he wrote the postcard. We knew he did it to be deceitful. Nobody knows where he's at. So at that point, I told Marianne maybe the best thing we could do is have him listed as a missing person. So both Marianne and Reve headed to the sheriff's department to file a missing persons report on Mike. They hoped if he was in the system, he would eventually turn up somewhere. I would like to file a missing persons report for my son-in-law. He's missing. Oh, Lord, what a fight I had that time. But I got it filed because I needed to find out where he went. Not long after Marianne filed the missing persons report on Mike, did she get a call informing her that Mike had turned up in a different state. He'd been attempting to apply for a job on an army base in Mississippi when they conducted a background check on him. Not only was it discovered that he'd been reported missing, it came up that he was considered a person of interest in his wife's disappearance. Somehow word got back to Reve that despite the Morgan County Sheriff's Department being notified about Mike's location, they hadn't intended on traveling the lengthy distance to speak to him. In fact, they informed the local authorities to just let him go. Of course, I was upset, so I contacted the sheriff and said, hey, you know, what gives? You've got this guy, you know where he's at. Why aren't you going to talk to him? And at first he was reluctant because of the distance, but I was able to convince him that the distance really shouldn't be an issue. You have a missing woman in your county and that's important. After successfully convincing the sheriff's department to send two detectives to Mississippi to speak with Mike, they managed to finally have a conversation with him. And it didn't take him long to admit that he had forged Angie's handwriting and had mailed the postcard from Arkansas. He told them his reasons for doing so were because he wanted to throw the investigation off and because he wanted to provide Angie's mother with some peace. When the detectives got back to Missouri, the prosecutor filed a felony forgery charge and a felony tampering with fiscal evidence. So that was enough to extradite Mike back to Missouri. He was arrested and held in the county jail on a $25,000 cash-only bond, awaiting, of course, court for those charges. In December 2008, Almost five years to the date that Angie first went missing, the Sheriff's Department were able to get a confession out of Mike. 
I just sat down on the floor and started crying. And I just dropped everything and, and went out to the car and went home. And then I started telling my family and my friends, I guess Angie has died. They had had a fight and it spilled out onto the back deck. And the deck, which is about four feet off the ground, he didn't know if he pushed her or if she just fell or what. She fell off the deck and she hit her head on a rock and she died instantly is what he said. He said he sat with her for a while and then he wrapped her up in a tarp and then he put her in the car and he was going to drive to Versailles where the sheriff's department is and tell them that his wife had died. When he got halfway to town and he changed his mind and he said something about his adrenaline change somehow or another but he drove back home with her. Then he put her in the truck and he put the canoe in the truck and he he drove to a, do- a nearby dock and he put her in the canoe and he rode four miles upstream and he was going to put her on an island that he knew of. When they reached the island, the boat fell over and she fell into the mud of the shore of the island. He said the mud was up to his knees. So she fell into that, but he couldn't get her out, so he just left her there. That's what he said happened. She'd been missing for a little over five years at the time, and it was like, kind of took all my hope away. You know what? It was just like there had been a funeral, like somebody died in the family. I gotta admit, I know this is the craziest thing you're gonna ever hear, but I have nothing tangible. Maybe she didn't die. I mean, logically, my brain knows she did. But then again, I need proof. And just one fingernail, if the DNA says, that matches mine, then that's Angie, period. That's Angie. But I have to find her. When Mary Ann heard Mike's version of what happened to Angie, she couldn't help but wonder how much of it was actually true. After all, he'd lied from day one about her disappearance and continued to tell lies day after day for six whole years. Six days before Angie was supposed to arrive at her niece's birthday party, Mike had killed her at their trailer and disposed of her body. He claimed he put her in a canoe and paddled through the Lake of the Ozarks, attempting to put her on an island. But when he led detectives to the island, they didn't find Angie. The man that owned the island said that he and his two black lab dogs fish from that island every single day. He said there was never a body put on that island. His dogs would have known, they would have known. Lake of the Ozarks is huge. It's over 2,500 miles of shoreline. It's very deep water. It's very choppy water. It would be nearly impossible to canoe on that water. It would be even more impossible to canoe and row upstream any distance, let alone four miles. Six years after Angie's disappearance, Mike Shane Yarnell entered a plea of guilty to a Class C felony of involuntary manslaughter in the death of his wife.
Marianne suspected that if Angie's body were ever to be recovered, an autopsy would show that Mike did not accidentally kill her. Marianne asked the court to deny his plea agreement in hopes of finding Angie's remains. The judge presiding over the trial expressed her sympathy to the family, but stated she didn't have the authority to analyze the strength of the prosecutor's case. Mike was then sentenced to seven years in prison, but only served four. While in prison, Marianne decided to pay him a visit. I actually begged him in that prison, just let me know where I can go collect her remains, because she deserves to be buried. Just like with dignity, you know? He won't, he won't tell me. It wasn't uncommon for Angie and Marianne to talk on the phone three times a week. They were extremely close, and there wasn't much that Angie kept hidden from her mother. She had confided with Marianne that at times Mike could be mean with his words. Just a short time before Angie went missing, she told her that Mike had been trying to quit smoking and was extremely irritable. He'd also grown frustrated with Angie because she hadn't been able to hold down a steady job and he threatened to leave her. She told Marianne that she begged him to just stay for the winter. They had a wood furnace and they lived about 30 miles from the nearest town. And she was afraid that if she got a job in town and Mike had left, that when she got home, that the fire would be out and she couldn't keep it going. And she was afraid to be alone during that winter. So he said, okay, he would stay. Marianne had tried several times after that conversation to get in touch with her daughter. It was highly unusual for her to go even a few days without hearing from her. For a week, I tried to call Angie. They didn't have any cell phone service in this really remote little place that she lived. And she didn't return my call. So I thought, she's just busy this week. But it was odd that she didn't call me back at all. Not only had Mike Yarnell stolen Marianne's precious daughter from her, he had allowed her to then agonize for six long years, wondering where she might be. In an attempt to protect himself, Mike made up a story that assassinated Angie's character. In doing so, in one foul swoop, managed to convince local authorities to neither search for Angie or investigate her disappearance. To this day, Marianne has no idea where her daughter's body is, but refuses to give up looking. I take shovels down there and dig holes for her every chance I can looking for her, because nobody will. I would just go down looking for Angie on the property, beyond the property. The rumors were just huge, tremendous. I would follow those rumors. I would go to those places. I was told... Oh, well, she was put in a barrel, and she was rolled down into a sinkhole. At the bottom of that sinkhole, there's a cave. Well, I got down to the bottom of that sinkhole, and I went in the cave. There's no barrel. There's nobody in that cave. I crawled under old homes. I crawled through old burn pits, old burnout houses. There's no place I'm not going to look for Angie. Angie Yarnell's case is still considered an open investigation because her body has never been recovered. According to Marianne, 
She'd been told that cadaver dogs had been brought to the property, but she hadn't been permitted to attend the search and feels it wasn't extensive. At one point, Marianne reached out to a college professor who was willing to help her search for Angie using a special technology. 30 miles from here is Columbia, Missouri, and it's a college town. I heard of a man by the name of Michael Himmel. He is a professor. He taught forensics and DNA and all technology and all this kind of stuff. He had a class. He taught this stuff. And he takes his students, and they will go and do a grid search. And they have all kinds of equipment and everything. He said, yes, we will go and do this. It, it took weeks and weeks of talking to this man. I was so excited. They were, and, the, and the owner did give permission. But right before the day, the only thing we were required to do is to get a coroner on site in case they found something. A couple of days before the search was about to happen, Mike Himmel called me. He said, we can't do it. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we don't need the sheriff's department's permission, but we always want their blessing. He said, in over 20 years of doing this, I've never been turned down before, but they will not work with us. They won't give us their blessing. Therefore, we, we're not going to do the search. It's been 15 years since Angie's life was taken. And although time and having some answers has helped to relieve some of the pain and suffering that Marianne and her family have experienced, it will never erase it. I just couldn't even hardly function back then. I, I was on the verge of tears every day, all day long, for a couple of years. I just couldn't live without my baby. I couldn't. These days, I can't say everything, but many things revolve around Angie. Angie's still so big part of my life. I do everything I can to make sure that Angie's not forgotten. I don't cry every day now. To this day, most of my music is all Angie songs. I just miss her so much. Upstairs, I have a big trunk and full of presents from every Christmas and every birthday. I buy Angie a present and I put it in the trunk and it's very, very Angie-like presents. When she went missing a couple weeks later, I just picked up a notebook and wrote her a letter because we sent letters in the mail back and forth regularly like nobody else did. We did it all the time, and I just missed writing her a letter, so I wrote her a letter. And then I just kept writing another letter and another letter, and before I knew it, I wrote the whole notebook full of letters to Angie. And I was trying to explain to her, I'm writing to you in case when you come back, in case I've died, I want you to know how I feel. And it's not in any way to shame you or make you feel bad. I just want you to know how much I love you. That's, that was my intention of, of writing, just in case, in case I died. And I fully expected her to come back. Way down deep, I knew she wouldn't, but I kept telling myself she would. So I kept writing, and then I, I, I did another notebook. And before you knew it, I started titling the notebooks. They're all called Letters to Angie, and they're numbered, and they each have a unique title. I've written 25 notebooks of Letters to Angie. Both Marianne and Rave have their own theories on where they believe Angie's body is. Marianne suspects 
Angie has been buried somewhere on the property where Angie was killed. Reve suspects something different. I have absolutely no proof, and it's an absolute theory only that I believe might transported her to Harrison, Arkansas, disposed of her body there, and there is a waterway down there, and then mailed the postcard. I don't have anything to base it on other than that postcard, but it just seems very odd to me that he would take the time to drive all the way to Harrison, Arkansas, just to mail a postcard. There's a lot of details surrounding the investigation that continue to gnaw away at both Marianne and Reve to this day. The fact that she went missing and nobody took that serious. The fact that she went missing and her husband was never looked at as a person of interest or even questioned about her disappearance for a matter of several years. The fact that Marianne was not treated with any kind of respect in the beginning, I mean, as far as law enforcement goes. It's almost like, and I've heard Marianne say it many times, like she was dismissed from the get-go, and that's not okay. And the fact that Mike left and nobody did anything about it, nobody questioned him, nobody looked for him, that bothered me. I believe the lies that he told about what actually did happen to her, they just went with it. They have a confession, so they get charges, and they're just going to go with it. I don't, But I don't believe his confession was, was true and honest. As far as law enforcement was concerned, it was a done deal. They closed the case. And maybe this would be the part that, that bothers me the most, is that he was able to plea bargain and get himself down to one involuntary manslaughter charge and with a maximum seven-year sentence in which he only served four. So he's already out of prison and has been out of prison now for nearly five years. Mike Yarnell has been in and out of prison. And from what we managed to find out, continues to live in Missouri. Not long after he was released, Marianne recalls a brief encounter with him at a local store. I was in Walmart in Jefferson City, and he had gotten out of prison a couple months earlier in July. And at that time, Angie had been missing for 10 years, almost 10 years. I looked up and just three feet from me. We locked eyes and there he stood. And he was with this really pretty woman. She just kept walking. She was just oblivious to the situation, I think. And he said, how are you? I thought I was going to have a panic attack or something. I said, well, I'm not very well. It's almost 10 years that I can't find Angie's remains. Can you tell me where Angie's remains are? He said, I told you. I put her on an island, and I just left everything there. I'm so mad that I didn't cause a big ruckus. It was one of those things, if you could just do it over, next time I will know what to do. I went out to my car, and I just sat there, and I was just shaking, and I was just crying, and I, and I felt real stupid, and I was almost mortified. All of a sudden, I just was like a zombie. I just put my car in gear, and I backed it out, and I parked it in this handicapped parking spot that was aimed directly at the door. And I sat there and waited for him to come out. And I thought, I'm going to run him down. I'm going to run him down. And I sat there about 20 minutes, and I waited, and I waited. And he didn't ever come out. And then all of a sudden, I thought, 
what in the world are you doing? Stop it. I backed up and I drove home. I have three acres and out back, I have a big long shed out back. I have had him strapped to a chair in that shed in my mind many a time. There are a lot of moments that Marianne continues to replay in her mind, and one she often wonders about is how she hadn't been able to detect that her daughter was in an abusive relationship. Not only was she incredibly close to her daughter, she felt she should have been able to recognize the warning signs, having escaped an abusive relationship herself. When I was barely a teenager, I met the wrong boy, and... The next thing you know, I was being abused, and I was 15 years old, and I had a baby. It, it became a really hard life for a whole lot of years, but I finally got away, got out of it, and I just went from a, a quiet little person that didn't dare speak, in fact, to this woman that cannot keep her mouth shut now. It, it's just amazing how I'm not even the same person. Licensed counselor David Perka explained to us some of the complications that may arise due to domestic abuse. My name is David Perka. I'm a licensed professional counselor. My background includes working with incarcerated populations, but I'm currently in private practice working with folks that struggle with depression, anxiety, and traumatic disorders. Um, and then I'm also a, a professor at a local university here in Denver. It's really common when people lose someone to start wondering what they could have done differently to have prevented it. And you get a lot of those, I should have seen this, I should have seen that. And there are warning signs and we can talk about what those are. But I think also it's really important to realize that many times you're dealing with somebody who's intentionally isolated somebody. And so the whole goal on their side of things is to keep things secretive. So it's being careful not to take too much responsibility for not knowing that something was happening because the thing that was happening was deliberately being hidden. Other thoughts like things to look for, you know, there's common themes that emerge with domestic violence, you know, and now one of the ways that they assess if somebody's in danger is they actually use different actuaries. So there's one called the dangerous assessment. There's one that's called the mosaic 20, but they basically ask different questions around risk factors, like what's going on right now, what's present, what's not present. And then it gives you a score to see how much danger you're in. And certain things it looks for is jealousy. Is the person that you are in a relationship with, are they concerned that you're interested in another relationship? And so that jealousy is oftentimes what motivates somebody to control and isolate someone. And so that can be things like, do you have to get permission to use your car? Do you have to get permission to spend your money? Do you have to get permission when you can see your family? Controlling your location, controlling your freedom, controlling your support system. Is there forced sex in the relationship? Was there an assault while you were pregnant? And then also unemployment or underemployment is something that's associated with men who hit women. And some people think that's because they're trying to reassert some sort of status because they don't have status in the society they live in. I'm more prone to think, well, if you're the kind of person who hits somebody, maybe you don't have the temperament for the workforce. But I think that all of those things can be present. More than that can be present. But those are kind of 
common themes that emerge that maybe you can start to pick up on from the outside. Sometimes people are hard on folks who get trapped in relationships like this. And they're like, man, if I was ever in a relationship, I would just leave. You know, I wouldn't put up with that. And I think what they don't understand is that oftentimes the situation, the context of the relationship, it's shaped over time. It's not like the victim in the relationships approached and says, here are the keys to my life and everything. And just do with me what you want. It's gradual and it progresses. The metaphor that comes to mind is it's like being in the ocean and and then, you know, you look for your towel and your cooler and it's a quarter mile down the beach and you just don't know how that happened. When it's gradual like that, it's easier to get pulled into it. You know, when we talk about domestic violence, the person that comes to mind is, you know, this really grisly predator who is just some really dominant, scary dude. Uh, without a single redeeming quality. And the truth of the matter is, is that even people who are really bad people, they oftentimes have really likable things about them. Just because you're totally destructive or really destructive doesn't mean you aren't likable. And I think that that is because victims anticipate that if this was a really bad situation, I would know it because I would be dealing with a monster. And it would be easy to tell that I was dealing with a monster, but I'm dealing with somebody who's conflicted. I'm dealing with somebody who apologizes. I'm dealing with somebody who struggles with depression. I'm dealing with somebody who struggles with addiction. I'm not dealing with this one-dimensional predator. You know, part of it too, I think for people is understanding, and this is true in relationships in general, that maybe your love for somebody is unconditional, but relationships should be conditional. And so you can love somebody and know that you're always gonna love that person, but you should definitely decide if you're going to be in a relationship based on how they treat you. And I think that that's a really important distinction. Just because you love somebody, that doesn't mean you should be with them. When Angie first disappeared 15 years ago, Marianne had two billboards put up offering a reward of $5,000 for any information on her daughter's whereabouts. She has since increased the reward amount to $10,000 and is now asking for information on where her daughter's body is. Reve and Marianne have discussed putting up a third billboard close to where Mike works, a billboard that includes a photo of Angie and one question, where is Angie? When we asked Reve if she could send a message to Mike Yarnell, what would it be? She said, at least tell Marianne the truth, where he put her remains so she can give her daughter that dignified burial that she deserves. I mean, that's the absolute least that Yarnell could do is tell the truth of where he put her remains. Mike had managed to smear Angie's character with one damaging tale of deceit. We hope to finally let people hear what Angie was really like and how much she was adored and is still missed by her family today. We asked Marianne if she could describe some of her early memories of Angie growing up. It took literally 45 minutes from the first contraction and she was bored. And she just came out and she was screaming. She was really, really pretty, dark hair, brown eyes. She just was a really good baby. She slept all through the night. She was a funny little old girl. And um, when she got a little bit older, she demanded to be called queen. She wanted to be the queen, no matter what. And we just all started calling her queen. One time, 
she came to me. She was crying and she said, Mom, Eric said, I'm really not a real queen, but I am, ain't I, Mommy? And I said, yes, Auntie, you're a queen. Marianne's continued efforts to locate Angie's missing body doesn't end there. Since losing her own daughter, Marianne has started an organization called Missouri Missing, where she provides critical information to families searching for their loved ones. She's become an advocate and friend to countless people who have lost someone. In doing so, she hopes to provide them with the kind of guidance she never had. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I can feel the madness. Someone's standing at my door. I hope they can't get in, cause I'm